0: Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing.
1: This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be Extra Environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The Outsider the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all
2: places the same to you.
0: Welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, joined by my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Today on episode number 51 of The Extra Environmentalist, we are joined by writer, author, storyteller, Stephen Jenkinson, who's going to talk to us about death and dying
2: one of the things that our culture has an extremely difficult time processing and understanding is death and death is an integral part of what it means to be human and because we face so many difficult challenges in our world it can become very easy to be extremely scared of death and to have a lot of fear in facing the possibility of physical harm that you can incur or the death of loved ones or if you're looking on the news and you're seeing all of the death and dying that's going on around the world, whether it's war or famine or other issues. And so today we're speaking with Stephen Jenkinson about what it means to die and the problems that we have with death in our culture. And Stephen has some very interesting perspectives because he's worked with dying people for many years now, and he's learned a lot about indigenous wisdom of death and dying and how other cultures relate to death. And so that's what we're going to be talking about to him about today and death and dying
0: are very taboo subjects so if you do start feeling uncomfortable at any point during this episode feel free to pause take a break get a drink of water come back and keep on listening
2: that's exactly right Seth this is an extremely heavy topic talking about death and dying And so don't push your listening to think that you have to listen to the whole episode all in one sitting. It's perfectly fine to break it up and take some time to let all of the
0: depth really sink in. That's right, Justin. So without any further ado, let's learn about death and dying.
2: Stephen Jenkinson, thanks for joining us from the Ottawa Valley in Ontario today to talk about death and dying. And because you are in an area that's being affected by the drought that's happening in North America this year, I was wondering if you could start out by telling us a little bit how the drought has affected you on your farm and describe a little bit about where you live and your homestead.
3: We have a farm that never should have been cleared like so many places in North America. Never should have been cleared a bush. Never should have been put under the plow. It's on a river bank, and so it's basically sand. It's what they call luvial till. So we have sand and gravel, which mean uh, when we started to farm, we actually had to make soil for about three four years. That's all we could do. So people would say to me, like I'm clearing customs, and they say, what do you do for a living? I say, well, I farm, and they say, what do you farm? And I would say dirt, and they'd look at me like, wise guy. But that was the literal truth. We're just scraping along, really, because it's a very unpromising soil, and we're letting a large part of the farm actually go back to bush, the truth be told, which certainly breaks the heart of all the old farmers in this area, and it's so understandable. The men and women of their generation and their parents' generation literally broke their health to clear land like this, and for them to see it go back to shrubbery and ultimately to trees is, in some part of them, enormously hurtful, so... We do talk about it around here from time to time, and they don't know how to make sense of it, frankly, and so it's one of the differences between them and us, you know, and it's not a problem at all, but it sure is a different understanding of what stewarding the land could possibly mean. But as far as the drought goes, well, if you're already working iffy soil, and then we didn't have rain for upwards of five weeks plus, and we had around 30 to 32 degree weather every day of those five weeks, it was impossible. And so... Everything around us died, and the strange twist which, for which I can take no credit is as follows. We have a kind of a mountain behind us. It's only called a mountain because it's the tallest thing for, for a good distance, but it's not very tall, certainly not by B.C. standards. We have a creek that runs down off of there and comes in behind the house and so on and goes through a certain part of the farm, and, and the beavers find that easily, of course. They're about as rapacious at land development as humans are and they make a remarkable dent on uh, everything around them and so when i got the place they had a mammoth uh, heavily engineered dam and i did everything i could to drain it over the years and sometimes they were there and sometimes they'd gone and i did everything i could to chase them out tried to trap them try to shoot them with a bow and arrow honestly and nothing ever worked really and then there was a certain evening some f- four or five years ago When I was driving up the lane, and it was midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning, the moon was full, and there's one of the beavers sitting right in the middle of the road. I just missed him, and I slammed on the brakes and looked at him in the rearview mirror, and he was sitting there, just enjoying the evening. He didn't even look at the truck, and I could see him in the rearview mirror. I could see him with my brake lights. He was well lit, and I had my hand on the gear shift, and I tell you, I sure was intent on putting it in reverse and solving that beaver problem but I couldn't make myself do it. It just seemed, it was just really a cheap and really low-life thing to do, and I couldn't make myself do it. And I Anyway, I drove home that night, and I swear to you, within a week, the whole beaver clan was gone. They left the whole area, and they were gone for three years. And I was just starting to reclaim the soil there and, and drain it and so forth. Well, didn't they come back last year with a vengeance? And I was so busy with a very good harvest last year that I never got around to rooting them out. And lo and behold, what saved anything I was able to grow this year was guess what? The water in that beaver swamp that I couldn't clear last fall. So it's a wild irony, you know, and it's a long story. It's not over yet because in fact, I think they have probably had to move again because their own swamp reduced to almost nothing in the course of that drought as well. Somehow they must have known something. And they sure helped us out tremendously. So I'd never be able to shoot them or trap them again, not on this land anyway, (laughs) for that reason. So it's been a really rough summer. A lot of the neighborhood farmers who don't have any standing or flowing water to their place, their corn never got above their knees. They're already dipping into what they grew this year to feed their livestock, which means come January, they'll all go broke, I'm sure, or or damn close to it, or they'll be mortgaged to the eyeballs and... All the feed prices already spiked by 20-25%, which is entirely not legitimate because the feed that we're feeding, our animals right now, wasn't grown this year. But you know how it is. Everybody gets an opportunity to cash in on a calamity, and they do, by and large. So that's what's happened here. It's a poor part of the province to begin with. Well, it's poorer now.
0: So it seems to me from that story that the circle of life definitely moves, even with the beavers. And I wanted to tie that into the difficulty that humans have with facing large amounts of difficulty and in particular facing death. Why do you think people do have such a hard time in facing this inevitable part of life?
3: Well, I don't know that we should say people for starters. It's not everybody the world over that that would be true for, number one. It's not always been the case, number two. And so and you're thinking about this to say, why is it that it seems almost everybody we know in our time has this problem or has this dilemma or has this challenge or has this unspoken dread? I think that'd be closer probably to the way it actually is. Well, there's a few layers to it. In no particular order, one of them would be that virtually all of us come to our own time to die as a, an utter amateur in this matter. Meaning, not only do we have precious little understanding or knowledge to bring to bear when we need it so desperately, but we have just very, very little experience to bring to bear either. Well, let me ask you guys, how many deathbeds had you been to by the time you were 21 years old? One. So one between the two of you.
0: Yeah,
3: right. Okay, so this is exactly the point I'm making, you see. In a sane culture, in a culture that was healthy, And that knew how to live deeply you guys would have been at scores of deathbeds by the time you're 21 years old you would have been expected to be there but when i worked in the death trade for so many years i was asked routinely by people with young children did i think that they should bring their kids to see a grandpa in the hospital or of course to the cemetery or the funeral home i mean why is it even a question and I would ask them, I would say, well, why wouldn't you bring your kids? And they would say, well, you know, I, I don't want them to be upset. And I say, well, do <laughs> you mean by upset, you mean sad? Are they not supposed to be sad because their grandfather's dying? What's the script for kids? They're not supposed to be touched by the depths of life. Is that it? Is that the magic of childhood? Has Disney had their way with us so deeply that kids aren't allowed to know anything? Until when? and then you hit, what, 16 and you're supposed to, or, or 21, or, or 28, or 35, or when is the question. And the answer is, of course, never. You're never really supposed to have to contend with these things because life's supposed to be fair and, if, and we're supposed to be an advanced culture and highly evolved and all the rest. And so presumably that means that we're supposed to be able to vote on when we have our challenges in life. But, of course, I'm saying that with a big tongue-in-cheek because you don't get any such vote. So the biggest single contributor to the fact that most people I know are really riven, I mean, really torn asunder at the prospect of the death of either themselves or somebody they love is because they don't have much experience with it. So all they have is imagining and projecting, and, of course, most of that is fearful. I mean, they're not excited by it, God knows, They're not very curious, the truth be told. The older people get, I find, the less curious they become. Well, the second poverty that we have is that we don't have a language that the culture bestows to us as we grow up that does justice to any reality that dying is. It doesn't give us a language to talk about what dying asks of us. And we have euphemisms coming out your nose, coming out your ears, are alleged synonyms for dying and if i asked you quick give me five synonyms for dying between the two of you what would you say right away
2: all right kicking the bucket or
3: <laughs> how about passing away passing yeah
2: passing away. away
3: there is a good one how about transitioning right probably going to say shuffle off the mortal coil of the great reward and so forth some of them are just frankly you're supposed to be funny or trying to be but most of them are disguises aren't they Why are we not allowed to say dying? Why, when I ask a room full of adults, how many in this room have lost their father? Why do most of them put up their hands with no hesitation whatsoever? Why is losing somebody a synonym for them dying? Ask yourself what it means to lose someone or something. If either you guys have ever lost your wallet or your car keys, it's a drag for sure. But it certainly doesn't describe something the car keys did, does it? It describes what you did to the car keys, but we use the same word to describe when one of your parents dies, or your siblings, or your kids, God forbid. We say, I lost them.
0: It's almost considered like a, like a bad word to say, oh, your, your father is dead now.
3: It's like considered yeah. rude, isn't it? Well, it's a strange kind of uh, propriety to not say the word. But how somehow the euphemisms are proper, as if the word die has too much finality to it as if we're driving the nail in deeper by saying it. My experience is your unwillingness to say the word has the consequence of having everybody walking on uh, eggshells around this whole thing, right? right? And then who knows what the right language, who knows what the right behavior, what the right sound you're supposed to make to show that you're considerate and that you're sensitive and you're compassionate and you're sympathetic? The answer is to be the most indirect you can be is to be the most sympathetic. And that is a recipe for absolute illiteracy where dying is concerned.
2: So I wanted to ask about your background and your experience. You mentioned you worked in the death trade. If you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that. And in looking into your background, you worked at a hospital or had experience with dying. Can you talk about how you came to some of these realizations?
3: Yeah, I could try. I mean, I hope I'm not going to sound too authoritative about how I learned this because... You know, whenever you're on the learning end of things, I mean, mostly you're kind of staggered and shocked and surprised, and you're not really in charge of the learning. But literally what happened was this. I was probably in my mid-30s or even late 30s at a certain point. A woman I knew started to pursue me with the idea of joining the staff at a hospital. And I said to her, no, 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 first of all, I'm quite happy doing what I'm doing. But more importantly, I'm not organizational material, and I know how these places work. And, you know, it won't work out well for anybody concerned. Well, she was after me for two years, and long story short, I finally agreed to run a, a very short-duration group for men who had somebody who was dying in their lives or uh, had done so. And that was the, the beginning. What I discovered in running that little group was that these guys uniformly had enormous capacity for anger, They were angry a lot of the time which is one of the reasons why people kept referring them to me. The question is what weren't they? That's the big question. I can ask questions like this now at my age with the experience I've had but in those days I didn't know how to ask a question like what are they not doing? How are they not feeling? What are they not seeing? But I realized somewhere in there that what they weren't was sad strangely enough. They were angry They were bitter. They certainly had a lot of enemies in and outside of the medical establishment because of what happened or should have happened or didn't happen or whatever. But they weren't sad because they didn't know how to be sad. That was an enormous realization for me. I'm not saying that they said this out loud, but we kind of stumbled upon it together me and them.
2: So you mean they didn't know how to mourn, they didn't know how to have grief?
3: Well, I'll get specific about what that word grief means in a few minutes. But when I say didn't know how to be sad, I mean, that phrase should strike you as a bizarre combination of words. Being sad is not something you know, right? It's something you, quote, feel. That's what this culture teaches all of us. But I'm here to tell you, because I spent so much time in the death trade, that being sad, there's nothing automatic about it when the circumstances seem to warrant it so obviously. In other words, there's a lot of people that either find a way not to be sad or never discover a way to be sad. It never occurs to them to be sad. Is this something from their childhood? That that no, no more than it's from your childhood. You see, what we're talking about is not individual or psychological problems or challenges here. I'm telling you, those six guys, however many there were in that group, what they were was so representative, such a fair rendering of what the culture had taught them, there was nothing unusual about these guys. I've run into just as many women who have a similar challenge in this regard. So it's not a gender thing, and it's not a thing from, quote, individual childhood. The problem's in the culture. It's not in an individual's imagination or psyche. And the inability to be sad is a culture-wide dilemma, you see. You try to get the word sadness into a conversation. I don't know if you've tried it, in let's say, in the interviews that you've done with people in different subjects. You try to surface the idea of sadness. It's dismissed very quickly. And why is that? My experience was is because it's determined that it's a kind of a useless thing to feel. Like you can't do anything with it. You can't turn it into anything. But anger? Hell yes, you can turn that into stuff in a hurry. But it's very hard to act on sadness. Eh?
2: When we do a lot of the interviews that we do and then discuss it with other people, a lot of the topics that we talk about in regards to, you know, how shallow our economy is or how uh, empty our culture really is, we might discuss it with somebody and they'll say, oh, you're being so pessimistic. How do you turn that around? And so I definitely hear what you're saying about the sadness.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's not pessimism, you know. Probably the case that you guys make more than a few times in every interview is... Let's be frank and say that our corner of the world has turned into a low-grade hell, certainly during the course of my lifetime. But I would prefer to say that the deeper understanding of what's happening is the culture that gave me my education, my livelihood, and so on, that culture is dying. There's no question in my mind. I know what dying things look like. I've been at enough deathbeds to know the signs and the symptoms. And the culture itself is beginning to die. I'm not talking about the rivers being fouled, although that's certainly a piece of it, or the air. You know, I'm not talking about the wretched economic spirals and the extravagant greed that has become part of doing business. And all of those things, they're all the signs. They're not the causes. eh? But the culture itself is dying. So the challenge I give to the people who come to study with me in my school, for example, is just as follows. If the culture is dying then what is asked of you? And the only way you can talk about that is to say, well, what if it's your mom then? Or your dad? If your dad's dying, what do you do? Do you get as far away as, you, as possible as you can from it so that, quote, you don't die, but you will die? So making distance from your dying father is not going to help you. right? It's not going to save you from anything. It's just going to make you dumber longer. So then, when, if your dad's dying, what's asked of you is that you approach. You're terrified. You're enormously distraught. You don't know what to say or do. And still, you must make your feet walk towards his deathbed or her deathbed. And that's the obligation that we have if the culture itself is dying. Our job is to be a faithful witness to what's happening. So first order of business is don't turn your head and don't blink because someday somebody much younger than you is going to need to know what it looked like in the early days when things started to turn real bad and it was irreversible. They've got to get it from somewhere, man. They're not going to get it from newspapers. They're not going to get it from Fox News. You know that and I know it too. But they might be able to believe someone in whose eye they can look while the story's being told. And maybe at some level, that's why you guys are doing these programs that you're doing. It's certainly one of the reasons I agreed to be on here with you.
0: So you're saying that as we march closer and closer to the end of, of our culture and our civilization, pretty much as we know it, our responsibility is not to run away from that impending doom, but it's to look towards it and embrace it and
3: to be a part of it, in a sense. In a fashion, I'm not sure about the embracing part, but... I mean, I, I think, again, the family analogy is a good one. If it's somebody... Let's just say mom for the sake of not changing over and over again. So if your mom, if it's your mom that's dying, I mean, obviously, hopefully you're going to embrace the woman herself more than once, right? Literally. But you're not obliged to die with her. That's not the program. It's not the human obligation for all of us to die at the same time because one of us is dying, right? No, the rest of us, our job is to be useful while the one close to us is dying. And it's not an easy thing to do. You can't be useful by keeping a 10-foot pole with you at all times and staying as far away from it as you can. You gotta learn her death. And it doesn't require you to die or to go down, so to speak, but you're certainly gonna know much more than you wish you did. That's the key thing. It's learning, but it's learning things you never want it to know anything about. It's the same truth at the level of culture, that we have to learn enormous things about something that we prefer, let's say, to curse, let's say, to sneer at. You know, this broken, haggard, sad excuse we have for a culture and so on. Most people want to disown it. It's understandable, but it's deeply cowardly to do that. This is why I use the analogy, I began this by saying to you, the culture that gave me my livelihood, you see, what kind of a person am I to take everything I can take from the culture, and as soon as it starts to go down, I'm the first rat off the boat. What kind of dignity is this? There's no humanity in that, you see. So those among us who plan to be human while the culture's dying, our job is to be as close to the death as possible. So someday we can bear faithful witness to it we can tell the story well maybe the story has some cautionary wisdom in it for generations not even yet born right now if it's not me meeting them then perhaps me talking to you and then you talking to someone who's a generation younger than you someday and so on you see that's the sequence that we have to rely upon
2: one of the challenges in taking that approach though is one our culture instills in us such a feeling of fear that in facing all of the challenges that we see in our world today, first, most people are really consumed in fear, but then second of all, we're also imbued with such a feeling of alienation and in feeling solitary when facing these challenges so then even though people may recognize that the culture is dying or recognize even some of the symptoms of the dying culture actually going through that process and saying i want to die with that culture is really hard because the culture creates such isolation they may not actually recognize their role in that culture what do you think about that
3: hey that's that's a well-wrought dilemma you've just described and you know, for the most part, the way you've characterized, it, I think, is pretty accurate. The only yeah, but I'd offer to you is to say, you know, it's not a great achievement to be fearful in fearful times. It's understandable. Don't get me wrong, I'm not judging. But I'm saying, in a hard time, you got to ask more of yourself than the circumstances would ask of you. I mean, the circumstance says, we've never taught you how to be a village. We've never taught you the deep understanding of community life. Sorry about that. And now that the culture is dying, we're still not going to teach you anything about it, and you're going to run for the hills one by one. So the response I'm giving to your question is to say, even at this late hour, we have to decide what our job is. I myself have decided some time ago what my job is, and that is to be in what I call the redemption business. By which I mean this, if the thing's going down, one of the things that it seduces in all of us, beyond the fearfulness and so forth, is to start thinking about number one, right away. Well, I'm not going to do it. And maybe there's good reason to do it, but I don't care. I'm still not going to do it. So in the face of all this, (laughs) I'm running a school about how to make village life in the very teeth of this calamity. And it's one gesture I can make in the face of everything that screams, don't do that. God, learn all your survival skills, right? And get as far away from the city as you can. Get off the grid. You know the standard rap for all this. Well, where do you think all these people are going to go when there's no more air conditioning, and the grid starts to melt? (laughs) It is going to be pretty rough. There's no question about it. So knowing that, the sanest response is to make as much humanity as you can while you're still able to. That means you've got to ask of yourself, what does a human being do at a time like this? But that phrase, human being, is something you got to be really educated about. My way of saying it to you is to say, human beings don't turn away from things that are dying, that once upon a time they relied on. What human beings do is find a way to be useful to what's dying not to stay away from it. It doesn't require you to die because, I promise you, your time will come, my time will come. The death of the culture doesn't coincide with your personal death, but it does coincide with a lot of personal sorrow, and yeah, fear as you've said, and sense of alienation, but I'll say it again. You feel alienated? So what? All you're doing is contributing to the death spiral if you say, they never taught me how to be anything but alienated, so I'm going to remain so. You see, you're just pushing it off the edge. No, it's just a braver thing to do to say, I think I'm going to do my damnedest to be human. You said that you had watched that film Grief Walker that was made about me some years back. You may remember there's a scene there where I'm talking to a young mom. She was probably in her mid-40s. She was dying. She had the stage 4 lung cancer, and she didn't have but six weeks or something like that. She had two kids. One of them was about 14, and one of them was about 17. And you can imagine the enormous sorrow that she had in knowing that she wasn't gonna see these kids into their 20s. She wasn't gonna see them marry, and the whole thing. And what that can do to everybody in the family is get them to grow the toughest, thickest skin they possibly can so nobody gets really badly hurt. And so nobody talks much except about the weather and things because to do anything more is to open up yet another wound and so forth. So I sat there with her and I said, you know, you dying is not the end of you being a mother. The way you die is how you mother these kids. And that's what they're going to remember. I mean, proceed as if the memories your kids are going to have are being written by you now. And then ask a lot of your kids. Don't let them run away from you now even though it's understandable that that's what they want to do because they're scared they don't want to see this happen but actually insist that they come and spend time with you every day and look at you and see the changes in you and hear the shortness of breath and so on ask that of them it will seem so cruel to the culture at large but I know and I said to her and you'll know that what you're doing is you're giving them a gift it's not a gift they want right now But someday, that's exactly what it'll be. That means they won't lose their mother, you see, because their mother saw to it that they even knew her death. They knew her that intimately. You can't possibly lose somebody that you know that intimately. So tell the same story about your dying culture. If you're willing to learn your dying culture, it's going to be actually very hard for you to be lonely and isolated and fearful as an older person. You're going to actually have some skill in being a human being and being human together with other people. That's where it comes from. It doesn't come from things going great or for you taking out an insurance policy so you don't get hurt. It comes from the hurt in part. Hey, and we're in a hurting time. I'm not, I'm not lying. For sure we are. That's true. We haven't seen the worst of it. So this is some thoughts I have about it anyway.
0: So, all your comments have brought up so many different things in my head. For one, my father was diagnosed with multiple myeloma cancer about five years ago, and we came smack face to face with that mortality that humans face. And dealing with that, we went. I went through all the stages of dealing with my father in sadness and grief, and then I got past it and he got better, but it's still there. It's something that he's going to live with for the rest of his life. Hmm. And that's something that I'm going to live with because he's my father. And, you know, it's brought us closer together as a family in many ways. It's also put a little bit of callousness around death, maybe a little bit about the fact that he's going to die. We know he's going to die from, but we we don't really know when. Yeah. My question to you is, you mentioned you don't want to be the, the first rat off the ship.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: At one point, do you leave the ship? what point do you say this? It, this culture is, is finished. It's it's done. I need to move on with my life. I need to become the next thing that's going to happen in this culture. When do I say this is over and I go on to the next step? Or will it always just be a part of me? I guess that's the other side of that.
3: <laughs> and if you keep going, you're going to answer your own question here in some fashion, too, for sure. Well, let me ask either one of you guys this. Do you have any, uh, as far as you know, any Irish ancestry at all? Yes. I don't. All right. so this is a handy reference now, and this is actually in history. If you go back 140-something years ago, the very vignette that you just described to me of, you know, everything's getting worse. At what point do you move on with your life? Do you just stop associating with what's dying and so on? This very thing was happening in Ireland. It's called, as you know, the Irish potato famine. It had an enormous consequence in that culture, to the point where there were more Irish people outside of Ireland than there were inside. And they lost a huge proportion of the population. What's my point? Did these people stop being Irish? We say, well, no, no, it's not comparable because this was simply a famine. It was a consequence of the failure of the potato crop and da-da-da-da. Oh, no, 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 no. It was rooted in in monoculture, agriculture that they were practicing, it was rooted in the fact that they'd been a colony of English for such a long time, it was rooted in their own inability to work out the Protestant Catholic thing, and the ongoing animosity and hostilities and so forth. And what did they do when they came to this continent by the boatload? Did they, quote, stop being Irish? Well, Do you know, as a matter of fact, a lot of them did, because most of them were poor, right? And Irish was synonymous with poor. So there was something about Ireland that was dying. Certainly the rural part of Ireland was dying in spades. And these people faced an enormously difficult choice. I mean, are they literally gonna die there? Or are they gonna take a chance and make it across without dying of typhus? And if they somehow make it, then what are they gonna do over here and so on? Do you know how many times cultures have died? This is not an unprecedented situation we're in here. It's happened a good number of times. I mean, someday, I suppose, people are gonna walk across the landscape that used to be Toronto or Vancouver or Raleigh or wherever, and they're gonna say, man, people used to live here. And they tell me that there was millions of them, or you know, whatever the situation is. Well, what story are they gonna tell? Are they gonna tell that everybody ran as far as they could? A lot did. But are they going to tell a story that some people were willing to learn it, why? So that those people walking across that landscape, oh, 500 years from now, let's say, will have some sense of what took place there. And they won't consider it just an abject disaster, better forgotten. And then they might realize that the best learning that people can do from failed culture is how much faithful bravery it took for some people to learn the dying of it. See, here's the thing. You can make as much distance as you want to from what you feel to be collapsing, but it's not going to add a week to your lifespan. So at some level, the way you're going to have to come to this is as someone who's not going to last a long time, not as someone who's trying to preserve their lifestyle options. That's the shift that has to happen.
2: And that's really hard to do, though, because we're trained from the moment we're born because of the way the dominant culture here in North America approaches death to not think about that moment of death when we're eventually dead and no longer here. And you were talking a moment ago about sadness and that you were finding that so many people didn't know how to be sad. There is a tremendous amount of sadness that's associated with thinking about the death of a culture. And so I'm wondering, how is it that we can learn to be sad and learn to give these issues the kind of respect that they deserve in actually taking on that learning process you were describing?
3: Yeah. Hey, that's brilliantly wondered about the way you've just said it. I think the key thing is this. The truth of the matter is that the dying of a culture is not going to bring to the surface any particular bravery, any particular wisdom in anybody necessarily. That's not a given. That's why I said to you earlier, in a sad situation, a lot of people are never sad. So then we have to think about it otherwise. What could bring those qualities to the surface for more than just a few of us? Well, alas, it's one of the things that's most deeply, wretchedly missing. And that is that it was your birthright, you guys, when you were born, and everybody's listening to us now, you had a birthright that was never delivered to you. It wasn't that you get to live as long as you want. That's not your birthright. It wasn't that you should be able to live in an environment that's absolutely not sullied at all by human presence. No, that's not your birthright either. Well, what was? I think it's this. What you deserved at a certain point, and it usually happens in sane cultures right around puberty. What you deserved is that, I'm going to use the word elders now, that people much older than you would have come to you and not asked your permission, but simply more or less grabbed you out of your days, out of your home, out of your mother's clutches, and all the rest. And I'm talking about the experience of being initiated into something. And that's what you deserved. And that was part of your birthright. And I'm quite certain it didn't happen. And it didn't happen with me either. So the reason I'm mentioning this to you now, in response to what you've asked me is, if you had had the opportunity for that initiation, what it is, the initiation at puberty ends your childhood, I mean, you have to use a forceful word here, it kills your childhood and gives you the chance to be a human being, to act on the things that you and I have been talking about here up until now. But without that rewiring, what happens is we have almost no choice but to bring all of the experiences of childhood, the lessons of childhood, the really questionable and sketchy wisdom of childhood. (laughs) I don't think there is such a thing, but That's what we bring into our teens and 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, to the point where, with some regularity, I'm obliged to deal with 50 or 55-year-old adolescents a lot. Well, that should never happen. So now, you take that situation and you apply it to the dilemma that we're both agreeing is happening, which is the culture is dying. And you have all kinds of people who are bringing expectations that come from their childhood to this enormous time in our cultural life. And most of them are saying, yeah, but what about me? What's gonna happen to me? Uh, or what's gonna happen to my stuff? Or or what about my future? I'm trying to say it in a whiny kind of voice because frankly, that's where those yeah buts are coming from. They're coming from a childhood that refused to die. And now that the culture's dying, man, the people's willingness to indulge their Childishness knows no limits because they feel they're being ripped off, that this is not fair that the culture's dying, that they should get a second chance, there should be a plan B. That should be their entitlement. That's their birthright. No, it isn't. No, this culture that you were born into, imagine that it's not an accident. Imagine that it's not an accident. You were born in the 1980s if you guys were, or the 70s or whenever it was. For my case, it's the 50s. Imagine that there's a reason why. And imagine that part of the reason why is not to punish you, not to rip you off from the golden age of whenever you think the golden age of this culture might have been. But in fact, you were born to come to your maturity now, just at the time when the culture's in its roughest state. Do you think those things could have had anything to do with each other? I think they could, and I'm saying, this is one of the things I try to teach in the school a lot is, imagine if we started to proceed as if we were needed, instead of as if we're needy. And imagine if we started to ask ourselves, have I been born now into this God-awful situation because maybe I can play some small part, not in preventing it from happening, because we've agreed, if your mom's dying, then she's dying already. Your job is not to make sure she doesn't die. Your job is to make sure what? That you do everything you can so that she dies well. That's what. And it's the same with the culture. And maybe you're alive now because you have a part to play in that. Well, there's no maybe about it. It has to be so. And that's the redemptive vision that I'm talking to you about now, is to say, oh yeah, it's hell to have to see this happening. I don't know how old you guys are, but I know a lot of people in their 20s and 30s, they just swear off having kids completely. And when you ask them why, almost uniformly they say, I'm not bringing kids into a world like this. Well, it sounds like a principled decision, but if you don't bring kids into this world now, then what will be there for the world, what will be there for this culture, what's ever left of it in 40 or 60 years from now? Who's gonna be there? If we cut the population by half because people just say kids don't deserve this kind of god-awful life, then what life will be there? You see, human beings should be in the business of making culture, of building culture, okay? I mean, if you've done any planting work, any farm work yourselves, you know very well that whenever you plant a seed, you don't plant it in a hill of seeds, do you? Of course you don't. You plant every seed in what? In earth. And what's earth? Most deeply and poetically and mythologically understood. Earth is everything that died before you. That's what it is. And so if you're gonna try to make a culture, you're gonna try to plant the seed of a new vision of what human beings could be, what sanity looks like, what compassion looks like, what a sane economy looks like, what are you gonna plant that seed in? And the answer is, You have to plant it in the decomposed, decayed remnants of the culture that gave you your life. It turns out everything that dies is life-giving. That's where the ability to grow something new comes from. If you stay away from it you'll never learn that. You'll curse everything that died as all children do. But adults don't curse what died simply because it didn't last. They say, we will plant something new in what did not last. That's a new beginning. But it has to start with the poverty of what's passing away.
4: we will come up with the most bizarre fantasies to avoid dealing with the issue of death. That's a lot of what's behind things like the rapture, the singularity, the whole 2012 nonsense and so on. It's always to pretend to us to pretend to ourselves rather that we're not going to die, we're going to be lifted up to heaven to be with Jesus, or you know, go through the the sort of electronic rapture that the singularitarians are into, or you know, beamed aboard flying saucers, anything other than dealing with the fact that our bodies are ripening toward death all the time, and they will eventually do what they were born to do and shut down. This recognition, this recognition that death is essential, that it's part of human life, that it's the natural and appropriate end of human life, though it terrifies us, um, it's also the foundation of any basic wisdom or really any, any functional approach to life. As long as you spend your time running away from death, you're also going to be running away from life. And you're going to lose track of the fact that you only have so many minutes and you're probably not going to want, as you lie there dying however many years from now, it is, to think back and go, gosh. All that time I spent watching stupid sitcoms. That was a really good way to spend my life. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't. Living in a dying culture, all cultures are dying cultures, just as all human beings are on their way to death. Every culture has a finite, has a finite lifespan. How long that is is anyone's guess, just as none of us know how soon we're going to die. But every culture is a dying culture. Every culture is going to run up against that limit sooner or later. Ours is um, fairly close to it in some ways, although there's a lot of question as to what that amounts to. Oswald Spengler, who I talked about in in an earlier episode here, he argued that the situation, basically a culture will go on for a certain period going through the various kinds of creative options that it has open to itself until it's basically worked out the full range of possibilities based on its, its sort of initial ideas, its, its basic take on the world. And at that point, it's basically finished in terms of originality. At that point, it can go on, as the Imperial China did, as ancient Egypt did, and continue to work with that language in, in, in various ways for anything up to thousands of years. And, but it's not going to be a creative culture anymore. It's going to be a conserver culture. So one of the things we need to think about is, are we prepared to be a conserver culture? Are we prepared to recognize that the reason that all of these great avant-garde movements don't go anywhere is that there's nowhere left for them to go? That we've worked out the complete range of possibilities within Western civilization, and anything from here on in is going to be interpretation, is going to be performance, like classical music. I mean, there are people who are still pretending to write classical music nowadays, but most of it's completely unlistenable. It's ghastly stuff. The stuff that's coming up that's any good is very strongly based on work that's been done 100, 200, 300 years ago. And the best stuff of all is that people who are performing Bach and Beethoven or whoever who are performing it in not not really new ways but performing it maybe a little better. So that's the kind of thing that we can think of as our culture finishes through the the very rough transition that we've made for ourselves into the possibility of a conservator culture down the road. Now, all of this implies that I don't believe that you know, Western culture is going to crash in flames and, you know, within the next decade or something. Like that. And I think that's quite true. I think a lot of um, a lot of individual nations are going to come apart. We're going to have a lot of really rough road ahead of us, no question. But this notion that everything will end in that, again, that sudden glorious fireball is, again, it's, it's ultimately a religious idea. It's, it's the escape from death. It's the escape from the from from history, from the reality of our culture and what we're actually facing. And tempting though it is, I mean, we all want, we all love fireworks, thermonuclear fireworks, anything. Could an asteroid please just nail us and make it colorful? Probably not. So instead of getting bent out of shape and, and you know, saying, oh, I want the world to end, where are the zombies, let loose the zombies, sooner or later we need to deal with the fact that history is just going to keep on chugging along that it's going to bring us a lot of crises and catastrophes and a lot of people are going to die. Um, But, you know, that's history. (laughs) History could be described as the process by which millions of people die in a hurry. And you know, that's going to happen, some of us will survive, various new things or rehashed things will happen and it keeps on going.
0: You're listening to episode number 51 of The Extra Environmentalist.
2: And today we're speaking with Steven Jenkinson about death and dying.
0: talking about dying and the other option of dying is living and getting older and reaching maturity and and getting old is, is not an easy thing. My grandmother is close to 90 and she just moved up here to be close to her daughter which is my mother and she's given up her car and is now living in an independent living facility and she's really close to the end of her life and she tells me all the time that I don't even know what it's like to get this old. I don't know what it's like to lose all my ability to move around my independence in so many
3: ways. Well, the longer you stay close to her, the less she'll be right about that. See what I'm saying? Yeah, it's true. In other words, her aging is your PhD in being alive. <laughs> yeah, see how we're saying you got to keep going to school. You know, don't miss a day. Don't call in sick. You got to be there. And I don't literally mean You have to necessarily live with your grandmother, but you really have to learn that diminishment of age so that you don't come to your own aging time, if you're lucky enough to live that long, as some kind of rookie, some kind of complaining, belligerent person who believes that somehow they're getting ripped off because they can't do what they did when they were 40. So, now you ask me about elders. Well... I think we got to reserve that word elders for something that, that your birth certificate has got nothing to do with. Being an elder doesn't happen when you just get old and crotchety and start pissing yourself once in a while by accident. That has nothing to do with it. It's got to come from some other category of willingness. And I'd put it something like this. Everything you and I have been talking about, from deaths in our family, to the death of a culture, to not being initiated, to matters of cowardice and bravery, to willingness to see things that only hurt to be witness to them, and so on, all of these things are what? They are what you do as a way of learning how to be an elder. That's the proper way of saying it. Elderhood is something you got to learn. It's not something that just happens. I promise you it doesn't just happen. So hopefully what we have among us is as time goes by, we might be able to manage it such that we have fewer and fewer senior citizens and more and more elders. Meaning, we don't have people who are driving around with a bumper sticker, I don't know if you've ever seen this one, that says, we're outspending our grandchildren's inheritance. I saw that bumper sticker one time. And what that is, is older people flipping the bird, not just to their own aging, but to everybody who's younger than them saying, excuse my language, but, Fuck you, you've got no business expecting anything from me. I've already worked to my retirement, and from here on in, I'm in it for me. But I know a lot of older people who feel that way about their lives. That's not being an elder. That's being a 68-year-old adolescent who's still in it for yourself. The whole point of being an elder is to realize that the young people around you, whether they know it or not, they need you amongst them. You might have to wait until your dying hour for any of them to approach you, to ask you what it was like when you were 20 and 40 and 60 and when you first got married and when you lost that baby and so on and so forth. It might never happen that younger people come to you to ask you for that, but you got to live the last third of your life getting ready for that day to come. When somebody comes to your door who may not be your family. They may be a a neighbor kid who was sent over to borrow, who knows what, you know, screwdriver or something. And in the process of trying to find the screwdriver in the tool drawer, you just start talking to them a little bit. And by the time they go home with the screwdriver, they know a few things about life that they didn't even know existed, for example. I mean, all these things are possible. None of them are possible. If old people shut themselves up in gated communities because they can afford the security guards and they banish everybody under 60 from the place, or even in these this assisted housing thing for older people, it's a real double-edged sword because um, it sounds on the surface of it like, well, it's a real good solution to the fact that both of the parents are working so they can't take care of grandma and so-and-so. Well, slow down a second. Why are we agreeing that both parents have to work? Well, the economy is that... It, you see what I'm saying? If you keep pushing back to hold on a second, you can start to make different decisions. But it means if you want to take care of mom when she gets old, you got to think about your whole mortgage scene now so that you don't have to have three jobs. You can't have mom in the house, and as she breaks down and her health gets no good, you can be part of the bearing witness to her life, and you're not going to claim poverty or not being able to afford a third car as the reason your mom ends up in assisted living. Now, I know that sounds a little harsh and intolerant, but if you want to talk about the big picture, and I think you guys do, that's what I'm doing now. But the big picture visits us one family at a time, doesn't it? And there's a reason that we have these assisted living places for old people, and it's because most of us are not going to change our lives enough to have creaky old dad in the house, that's the reason that they're there, to be utterly frank with you. And so, does that look like disowning your elders or what? It does to me. So you got to make a big revolution to make room for elders, you see. And you were
2: mentioning a moment ago the feeling that so many people have when they come up to retirement, and that bumper sticker, I've seen it too. And that whole idea of looking out for number one is deeply ingrained in the way our dominant culture has been educating us and in all the media that's produced by it. And it also rubs up against the way that we approach death, too. I was wondering if you had examples from other cultures that had much healthier approaches to death, and any examples of rituals or the ways that these cultures approach death and dying?
3: Yeah, surely. Although we should say that the cultures you're asking me about, you might be surprised to find that they're a lot closer to home than you think. I mean, this stuff is happening very close to where you live. It's just not happening a lot. Okay, so, yeah. The mark of sanity when dying shows up is kind of deceptively simple. The way I say it is this. A good death, by definition, is a death that reiterates the possibility of making the village yet again, of making a community yet again. That's what makes it good. Well, I don't understand. So what's that got to do with pain management and, and symptom control and stuff like that? On the surface, it doesn't have anything to do with it at all what it is is the realization that everybody's dying time before yours is the place where you go to school to learn about life. It's not the only place to learn about, I know that. But it's a very reliable teacher about life. Including learning a lot of stuff you wish wasn't true. But you still gotta learn about it. So, a good death is one where the family doesn't circle the wagons, close the doors, and it's only immediate family only. That's the most impoverished, the saddest, the most lonely death there is, is that kind. Another way of saying it is to say, you can die healthy. I know it sounds crazy, until you're willing to consider this, the real mark of health is not that you're not sick, no, no, no. The real mark of health is that when you are sick, you're surrounded by a sort of cultural sanity and competence That knows how to be with you when you're sick and you're dying because it knows dying very well and if the culture around you is healthy guess what you're dying as a healthy person it might sound crazy but it's absolutely true so then what's the grimmest death is the one where you never have a chance to be healthy you never have the chance to feel sane not to feel lonely not to feel that you are somehow letting people down by dying not to feel that you're being ripped off by it, you see. So sane cultures are ones where when somebody is starting to die, the door is off its hinges. People are coming and going like crazy. People are just looking. They're just getting in there just to see it. And the little kids are pushing underneath the parents' legs just to look. And nobody's protecting them. Nobody thinks they can't handle it. People want them to learn about it but they can't learn about it by being told. They have to learn about it by seeing it, and of course, seeing the reactions of the adults. You've seen this one before, right? The stiff upper lip, like being strong. I mean, that's a, a ghoulish word for it, but that's the word I heard a lot. I have to be strong. What does strong mean? It means you look like nothing's happening. What kind of strength is that? That's mental illness, that ain't strength. I mean, health is when we can tell what's happening by looking at you. We can tell that something's up by how you are, just like we can tell when things are going good by how you are, you see. So the mark of cultures that have sanity around this thing are when these cultures are willing for the whole culture to be reestablished, reinforced, corroborated again, where people learn how to be with each other one more time, no matter if they get along or not. It's, a, it's got nothing to do with whether they like each other, because those things are all set aside, for at least for a time period. And I'm not saying that the cultures that you've asked me about are somehow better people. They're not better people. Of course not. But what they do have is a lot of cultural training that helps to remind them what it is to be a human being. I dare say that the culture that you grew up in, certainly the one I've grown up in, has no such training. What we have is training in how to be good no matter what, how to get out from under what's going on, how to look as if you're not sweating the small stuff. You know what I'm saying. And none of these things are worth a damn when it's your turn to die or somebody you love. So the real skill of the culture that you're asking me about is those people pretty much know how to be wrecked on schedule. And you and I have never been taught that skill. So how do we take
0: that almost ignorance that exists in our culture, that way of dealing with death right now that we have, and how do we change that so that people understand that it's okay to be sad and it's okay to surround death with life? How do we go about teaching people?
3: You've got to change your language first. Without changing the language, nothing's going to happen. So I'll just challenge a few things that you just said there. When you said, it's okay to be sad. No, forget the okay part. That's the permission thing. Forget that. Better to say, it's mandatory to be sad. It's expected of you. It's required of you that you be sad. Not that it's okay. That's like talking to kids again, you see? No. No, we ask this of you. We demand it of you. Our sanity depends on your ability to be sad in a sad time. For example, so you change the language. You stop using euphemisms for dying, for example. You stop talking about loss and trauma, and you start saying what it is, you know. So-and-so's sick, and they're not going to get unsick. so So-and-so's going down, and they're not coming up again. And, hey, let's go see them, because we may not be able to see them again. And when we're sitting there, we all acknowledge that this is the last time we're going to lay eyes on each other. I mean, how about that? How about looking at somebody who's dying and saying, you know what? I miss you already, man. I know I'm not supposed to say it because it sounds unkind, but I think it's worse t- for you to think that I don't miss you yet when I know I'm not going to see you again pretty soon. See, that's what it sounds like at the human level when we stop talking about ideas. That's how you start acting on it. You've got to change your language so that you're able to be sad and the person you're sad about feels your sadness. And you know what happens when they do? They don't say, for Christ's sake, I got enough to deal with. They never say that. You know what they say? Thank God that my dying means something to somebody. I was starting to wonder. Thank God that the fact that I'm not going to be around much longer counts in your life. You've no idea how rich this makes me feel. How I was starting to feel invisible because everybody seemed to be okay. I'm the only one who's not. You start to change what you say first, okay? You don't wait to figure all this stuff out first and then start behaving differently. (laughs) It's never gonna happen. No, no, no. You do your best to change your behavior as quick as you can. The first available opportunity, you make yourself do stuff that feels unnatural. If we're talking about, the word I'll use is the etiquette around dying. So we gotta change that son of a bitch. And we gotta stop talking about waiting until the person dies before we grieve and trying to be okay and gotta change all that. Just let it fall. Just recognize it for the craziness that it is. And start asking yourself, what would sanity look like at a time like this? What would love look like when somebody's dying? Does it change it? It completely changes it. So being respectful of someone when nobody's dying Bears no resemblance to what it looks like to be respectful of someone who is dying, for example, and the onus is not just on the rest of us. I'm telling you that change has got to happen with how people die too. The dying people have as much responsibility for what you and I are talking about now as you do or I do until it's our turn, and then we realize, my God, yeah, you know, a lot of dying people they they're complicit in the craziness that we've been talking about, and families. Most of families of dying people, I call them lunatic cheerleaders. Doesn't do anybody any good to say, I think he's going he's gonna to pull through. You know, he's going to make this and that stuff. And then you read the death notice in the paper. And what do they say? After a long and courageous battle, they say, and then they won't finish the damn sentence. But what is the sentence? He lost. That's the end of that sentence. If you keep calling dying a battle, well you lose so you got to change the language it ain't a battle it's not at all i mean your death was born at the same moment you were and it was coming and it was it's a package deal and thank god you don't know when because that would make you crazy and so there's a lot of compassion in realizing that you don't know when and that you're likely to be surprised by it because it gives you a chance to live without a date looming in your head you see you ever written an exam <laughs> for school, right? And you know the friggin time and day it's coming and for three weeks, you know and you're hyperventilating about three days beforehand and try as you might, you can't get sane about it because you know the D day's coming. Well, can you imagine what it would be like to know when you're gonna die then? I mean, you couldn't do it. So you realize, my God, you know, this thing called life is a pretty compassionate deal because I don't know when I'm gonna die. So I really don't have to live. With the date looming, I just have to live with the understanding that the day will come. And so that changes everything I'm able to do between now and then. Because I realize, hey, this is not going to last. So what am I waiting for?
2: But there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in that. And so much of our culture, our reliance on quantitative methods are all about eliminating that uncertainty. And so we're trained from a very early age to be comfortable in that certainty, not to be living with uncertainty all the time. And so people carry around anxiety. We carry around that uncertainty. And in thinking about death, it brings a lot of uncertainty into people. Or thinking about the death of a culture, it brings in a lot of uncertainty. You know, will I be able to find food? Will I be able to meet my physical needs? Will I be able to, for youth, you know, will I be able to have a career and support myself? So, how do you talk to people? that are dying, or really anybody, about dealing with that uncertainty.
3: If you're walking around with certainty, you're nuts. All the strategies that you've described to me to somehow manage uncertainty, all of these things are just rearranging the deck chairs on the deck of a ship that's bound to go down. You're not supposed to be certain, and it's not required for you to be certain in order for you to be human. It's not required at all. That certainty thing, that's more of that kid stuff. Like you're entitled to know before you do anything how it's going to work out. For example. So the the whole thing of really growing up a little bit and coming to a certain maturity in your years is to realize you don't get to know about stuff ahead of time. Your job is to put one foot in front of the other. That requires a certain amount of bravery, right? Or what they call in a Buddhist tradition, crazy wisdom. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. You know, the culture is whispering to you that you're supposed to be certain. Who cares that that's what the culture's taught you? Like it's time to grow up beyond the madness that the culture has fed you intravenously. You can realize otherwise than what you've been taught. You can realize, for example, and I say this with great compassion, that your parents Let's say they did the best they possibly could. Still and all, they taught you a lot of goofy shit, right? <laughs> I'm a parent, I know what I'm saying. <laughs> and you gotta realize this, but that doesn't mean you're gonna nail your parents to the cross because they weren't perfect. And it's the same thing with the culture. The culture's an orphan to begin with. It didn't have a chance of being sane for very long, and it wasn't. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna disown the thing? No, come on, grow up a little bit. What you're going to say is, well, what choice did it have? But my culture is not my fate, for crying out loud. There's more to you than what you've been taught. There's more to you than the influences that came to you in the first five years of your life. It's only if you're a psychology-minded person that you think the first five years is fate and everything's going to be some variation on that theme for the rest of your days. That's nonsense. But it takes a certain amount of sort of courageous learning to outgrow the limitations of what you've seen up to a certain point. This is why certain religious traditions people would just sit there staring, called meditating or whatever you want to call it, for years. One of the things they're wrestling is the limitations of what their culture and their families and their lives served up to them, to realize the story is bigger than what you've seen so far so ask more of yourself instead of waiting to be asked you got to ask more of yourself
0: so many religions around the world and in particular westernized religions have an incredible amount of certainty about what happens when you die that's very true you live this sort of life you live this sort of way of being and you're going to go to heaven or if you don't you're going to go to hell right so how do people's religious beliefs begin to change as they approach death, or do they change?
3: I guess by and large what I saw is, I think you'd probably know what I mean if I say, essentially the culture now that you and I have been talking about is a kind of post-belief culture, if I could put it that way. It's a post-religion culture. There's not really many people who self-identify as being card-carrying members of any particular anything. So, as you'd expect... The lion's share of the people I worked with who are dying themselves wouldn't know themselves to be religious people and yet when people are dying there's a certain amount of let's say unexamined hope that they had at some point in their lives about what it all means about what it's all for about what happens to you when you die and afterwards is there such a thing as something else is there any more of me or is that the end of me? And one of the great dilemmas, as I could describe it to you, would be something like this. Most people I knew lived their whole lives as if when you die, that's it, kaput. And now that they're dying, it's no more as if. What should they wish? Should they wish that they've been wrong their whole lives? Or should they wish that they've been right their whole lives? That dilemma, that will grow you up in a hurry wrestling that particular angel, you see. So I don't know that people particularly found any religion. That was not what I saw. Not really religious per se. I think it was basic convictions about life, about fairness and justice and mercy. Those are the kind of things that I think came up. And I'll be frank with you, a lot of people decided that life was bullshit and everything was a con and and nothing meant anything. And now the emptiness is really clear. Yeah. Sad to say that a lot of people did live out their last days with that kind of bitterness on their tongue. And the people who identified themselves as particularly religious, a lot of them went into their dying time suddenly deeply uncertain that those stock phrases were still true, to be honest. And so you can imagine that someone who's working in that field as I was, you have a lot to contend with when these kind of enormous life questions are coming up and you better have something to say to people when they look at you and say is there such a thing as miracles man i was asked that one a lot and that's by people who never thought they were religious for one minute of their lives but now they want to know about miracles you know and of course the miracle they're thinking about is of course the miracle of being cured right so that what so that you can die of something else later I mean. <laughs> When do we get to say, no, no, this is the right time for you to die. This is called your time. This is it. And I know it seems too soon. So one of the things you got to do is try to catch up to it. All right? Stop trying to fight it off. Catch up to it instead. You won't be defeated if you come to the agreement that this is your time after all. And the fact you didn't live into your 80s? Well, hey, most people don't. And the fact you only got to 46? Well, yeah, it's... A lot of that's pretty sad. But what are you going to do now? Now that we've established that it's not fair, what are you going to do with the time left to you? Are you going to bitch about the fact that it wasn't fair? Or are you going to re-examine your idea of what fairness is? To say, son, you got 46 years. I know a lot of people that didn't get six years. How about that? Is that going to change anything now? I know people who didn't get six minutes. Now what are we going to say about Fairness.
2: Before we let you go, I wanted to ask about the grief process. We mentioned a little while ago, defining grief and what it is. I was wondering if it's possible to have happiness without grief in our life. And why is it that we're so unskilled at grieving? How do we actually grieve?
3: You're getting good. You said unskilled, that's a brilliant restatement of it. That's exactly the case. Let me be as clear as I can be about this question about sadness and happiness. They're not opposites. Wherever you find one skillfully done, the other one is very close at hand. What? That doesn't make no sense at all. Actually, it does. As soon as you begin to realize, it's possible to have them both in your life almost simultaneously. How does that happen? Here's how. I say that the film, Grief Walker, is mostly about the following question. What does it take to fall in love with being alive? If you think about this deeply for a couple minutes, you begin to realize, I used to think that loving being alive had to do with everything working out. As long as things were good, as long as my wife or husband loved me, or I had six girlfriends, or you know whatever the magic formula is that we have for ourselves, I used to think that as long as things were good, then I'd be happy. And I found out that they weren't even related. I could have all that stuff going on, And something's missing, you know, and so forth and so on. So what does it take then to fall in love with being alive if it's not success, happiness, fulfillment, and all that other malarkey? And the answer is, well, once you catch a glimpse of the fact that this whole operation ain't going to last, now you have the chance to choose to love the thing. Up until then, all you were doing was approving of it, or, of course, disapproving. But when you glimpse the end of what you claim to love, That's when you begin to love it. Because that's when you have the ability to love it. Why? Because now, one of the things you have to love about it is that it's not going to last. Can you love that too? Or are you only going to love it when the guarantee holds? When the fantasy of everything lasting as long as you want it to holds? I'm not going to lie to you, of course. I'm 58. Do you think I've not glimpsed my death just more than a few times? I truly have. And I got two kids in their 20s in the world, I got a a wife and do you think I'm happy to to think about dying? Or if I die in two years, am I going to be happy about it? No. But that's not required. I can be immensely sad about it and at the same time immensely grateful that I got this far. Would I want more? Of course I'd want more. But the fact that I'm not going to get it doesn't mean I didn't get anything. It means I really got a good shot at things, including being able to sit here this long and talk with you guys about stuff that matters so we're not bullshitting each other. And that feels pretty good to be able to do it, you know. And I feel a little bit useful in the world because you guys called and asked me what I think about these things. And all of this goes into my feeling that it's worthwhile that I'm alive, you see. But it makes me sad to think that it's not going to last. Of course it does. So... Sadness and loving being alive, they're kind of, they're twins, but they're not identical twins, eh? but they're kind of joined at the hip. Wherever you find one, you're likely to find the other. If you're good at one, it's because you're good at the other one. It's like the crazy situation in Italian weddings, right? You ever been to one? You know you got all this rambunctious stuff going on, but in the back corner all kind of people wailing and crying and falling on each other's shoulders. Why? For the same reason you go to irish funerals right an allegedly sad affair where everybody's crying somewhere in the back corner guys are howling with laughter falling over each other telling stories about the knucklehead who just died so what what is that it's not just being irreverent no 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 it's that these twins of grief and the ability to love being alive they always show up together and that's what those pictures are of we could all be a little more italian and a little more irish we'd be better off for it to get that in there. So the, the phrase that I'd use for you is to say, grief is a learned thing. That means there's this thing called literacy around grief, and there's an illiteracy around it too. And the reason I've agreed to talk with you as long as I have is because I'm trying to do my part to increase the literacy around grief. But it's kind of a, it's an emotional literacy, if you will, or it's a kind of a spiritual literacy. It's not just a literacy of, of the spoken word, but it's also a literacy of the eye to be able to see things differently than my culture has insisted they are. And if I can do it, another white guy from Scarborough, Ontario, anybody can do it.
0: And I would say it also has a lot to do with dealing with pain and how people deal with that pain. You mentioned the Italian wedding and you mentioned the Irish funeral. Those are both ways that people deal with that the sadness and the pain that's caused by it. I wanted to explore just a little bit before we end here about your personal development. You moved from a, a more urban area to a rural environment. I was wondering if you thought that there was something missing in that urban environment, perhaps, or maybe a, a disconnect between the life and death cycles that happen in uh, everyday life, in, in the urban environment versus a, a rural environment.
3: Well, first of all, you know By the way you asked the question you know that it's true that that is so in an urban environment you really have a hard time getting anywhere close to what might be called the life cycle of anything even animals I mean pets anything you, you can't see it but remember for the kind of work I had when I lived in the city I was as close to death as it's possible for one human being to be over and over and over again for years so no I wasn't missing that per se I've imagined it this way I'd worked hard enough by that time that I deserved something that I imagined would be a little more consistent sanity around me than the urban situation was willing to provide. I'm not saying that it's any saner where I live now, out in the country. But what I would tell you is this. Last week, I had to bring my pig to the slaughterhouse. And that trip was one of the longest drives I've ever had. And when I got there... I was the one who had to talk him out of the trailer to go into that shoot, to make that long walk, you know. And I did it. It was one of the hardest things I've done in the last, I don't know how many years, because he looked right at me. And the way he looked at me is to say, uh, so what's all this, boss? Where are we at here? You know, he looked at me like he, he knew something. He knew more than something, yeah. And so I just tell you that little story to say, not that there's Life is more heroic in the country, because it isn't. Nor that it's deep. None of these things are true. If you don't have the capacity for depth, it doesn't matter where you live. If you don't have the willingness to see things for what they are, you could live anywhere and the whole thing is lost on you. The real secret is to earn the right to live in a sane place. Not keep running until you find it. By which I mean... If you end up somewhere that's halfway sane, how would you friggin' know if you don't have the ability to see it and to live it yourself? So, the way you're living right now is the whole thing. It's not like hold your breath until you can move to a farm. No, 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 no. If you do that, when you move to the farm, you'll be as crazy as you were when you lived in the suburbs. So, the whole skill is to earn the right to be in this place that you call sane. Earn it by the way you live in a place that isn't. Do what you can about the craziness that surrounds you. Yeah, at some point, maybe you're going to have to take a break from it because maybe it's too much. There is such a thing as too much. But don't run. Don't flee. Instead, conduct yourself as if you're a person born to this time because maybe you're needed, and risk looking arrogant, and instead decide that maybe the crazy place you find yourself in could use a little sanity that's got the approximate shape of you. Now you got to work on your sanity, yeah? you got to work on your kind of uh, emotional intelligence. you got to work on your, your literacy around grief, the, all the things we've been talking about and more besides. If you're willing to do that, hey, you may never move out to the country because you may discover that you just might be more useful where there's more people around. I did that, I certainly had that experience that I was as useful as I I could find a way to be inside the various systems as far as they allowed you to. And that at a certain point now, I'm differently useful. I teach a lot. I travel all over the world really and do a lot of that kind of thing. And I'm very very grateful for the opportunity to do it. Just like I'm grateful when I come back here and the chickens are looking at me, they don't care what I just did or how well known my name might be. (laughs) They're just wondering, are you food or aren't you? And you know, that helps with your humility quite a bit. And when your culture is dying, humility is not the first thing that comes to your mind as a good idea, but I promise you, it is.
2: You're working to create a new culture through the school and through the education that you do. And so I was wondering if you could tell us about what you teach at your school and about the Orphan Wisdom School.
3: Yes, it's called the Orphan Wisdom School. You can find the quick write-ups about it on our website, which of course is www.orphanwisdom.com and there's a lot of descriptions there of the school itself, the things that are taught in it. What you and I have been talking about for the last while is certainly all in there, but it's a real school. Now, that might turn some people off and say, oh man, I had enough of that, but this is a real school, though. This is a school I could never find, but I knew was needed. We have real reading lists, and we really learn, but we learn a lot of stuff that has to do with our fingertips, too. I do a lot of what I call the skills of a handmade life are learned in the school. The school happens right on our farm. That's very deliberate, so the school has a real home. We don't do it in the conference center of the Delta Chelsea downtown. It's right here, and it's the same place twice a year. And we ask people to make a commitment to learn with us for at least a couple of years so they begin to learn how to hear what I'm teaching, which you can't learn right off the bat, but certainly can be. Over and above the school, yeah, I do a lot of traveling and I'm invited to a lot of places, some conferences, a lot of community-based things. We put that on the website as well, and, and we welcome anybody who wants to be in touch with us to do so. We also have a newsletter that I don't like the word newsletter. What it is is something that's really concerning me. I write a short something about it, and we make that available to people who've indicated that they'd like to sort of ongoingly hear from us. So if anybody's interested in that, all they got to do is sign up for the newsletter via the website. And over and above that, occasionally we record teachings and stuff, and we make that available either in video or audio form, and have a few books out and things like that. And Mostly, we're happy to meet people where they live in their community, and if we can help them out by showing up and teaching a little bit about these things, you know, we're thrilled and honored to do it, and we welcome anybody asking us well what would that look like or how could we arrange it or what can you do for people under 25 years old or is there any hope for kids or or is it too late for the old folks the answer is there's a lot of things to be said about all that stuff and it's not too late for anything except the culture but we just might be fine
5: Free or am I tired of I've changed just too high In this place but I'm still I'm still an animal Nobody knows it but me
2: And that closes out our conversation with Stephen Jenkinson about death, dying, life in a dying culture, and how to find meaning in the face of living through the death of a culture and he had a lot of really interesting perspectives about what it means to live in a time with a dying culture because he's been at the deathbed of so many people and he was saying early in the conversation you know he asked us how many deathbeds had we actually been to and I'm 26 and you're 27 Seth and you know we only had one deathbed between the both of us and so other cultures didn't hide away from death because they couldn't hide away from death because death was part of every day life experience. Creatures were dying all around you because you had to hunt them or your elders were dying and they lived right next to you and you couldn't hide away from it or stick them somewhere where you only had to see them every so often. And so a lot of the topics that we cover on our show are considered pessimistic by a lot of people. What is it like when you talk to people, Seth, about the topics we have on our show? Do they just brush it off uh, about pessimism, about talking about the technical problems of peak oil or the cultural shifts that you know are occurring because of of all the debt that we have in society, do they just brush it off because it makes them sad? Because like Stephen Jenkinson said, we don't really know how to be sad in our culture.
0: Well, that's an interesting point, Justin, because it's it is easy, really easy to brush off death. And it is really easy to put your elders into a rest home and not really talk to them. And after this interview, I mean, this interview really struck home for me. And when I after this interview, I went around to some of my friends and asked them how many deathbeds they have been been at. And, you know, I've asked like three or four people, you know, And between them, maybe one or two had been at their grandparents' deathbed when they were dying. Even asking older people, even people that I work with, most of them had only been between one to three deathbeds. And that's really telling about a society that embraces life so enthusiastically, but then shuns death so vehemently. As our our society goes through its death throes, I think it's really, really important, like Stephen says to think about culture as an older family member to, to to be next to it to to really learn some lessons from this from the dying of this culture when this culture is gone we are going to be the only ones to tell the story of what it was to live in this peak oil peak everything society, when we are looking back and telling our children what it was like, or our grandchildren what it was like to live in during this time, we are going to be telling the story of, of a culture and a society that no longer exists. And I think that is a huge responsibility that we as c- citizens living now are faced with. And we have our duty and a responsibility to witness it and to embrace it and to be here and to be present.
2: And like Stephen was saying, when somebody is on their deathbed, sometimes it's hard to get past that conversation about more than just the weather, because once you get into that deeper conversation, it really does open up wounds. It makes you face things and learn things that maybe you didn't want to. But Stephen's point is that we need to learn those things. We have to learn those things. A lot of the conversations that we have had with previous guests are about some really horrific things that our culture has perpetrated because of the false ideas that we hold about human nature and have pervaded our institutions. But the other thing that Stephen brought up that also has that silver lining is that Cultures have died many, many times in the past, and even though the circumstances of this one are unique because it's a culture that's actually integrated itself into the minds of so many people around the globe, people who want the same amount of wealth and the same amount of ability to just burn fossil fuels without discretion that we've had in the United States and in the West for so long that it's really going to be a tremendous process as this culture dies. But it's kind of just like waves on the beach because that, culture comes and eventually it crests and then it starts falling and then it just absorbs back into the tides. And eventually there will be other cultures that come along. And I really liked what Stephen had to say about people who don't want to have kids. He was saying that you really do need to have kids because without them, where else are you going to plant the seeds of that new culture?
0: Children are very much a part of the future as much as they are witnesses of the past. And without that knowledge of the past, it's hard to move forward forward productively into a uh, into a new sort of future, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes and the failures of the past. And it's only through this conglomeration of knowledge and passing it down from generation to generation that we're able to make these changes and these needed needed restitutions to our culture and to the world that we live in. Justin, what is it like in Canada living there? Do people have the same kind of attitude towards death as they do in the States?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here in Vancouver, we're very much a part of Western culture, and we have all the same limitations that we do in, in the culture. I feel like there is an aspect of Canada, though, that is willing to face a little bit more of the darker reality without the shaded glasses. It's not extremely pervasive, but when you're national authors are people like Margaret Atwood who writes about these dystopias like in Orcs and Crake and The Handmaid's Tale. It says something that this culture maybe is a little bit more open to facing that darker reality and I found that being here there were initially a lot of people who didn't believe that the U.S. was falling apart and unwinding years ago when I moved here but that was three years ago and things have really changed a lot and the signs of decline in the United States are very obvious now, even so much that I remember last year, just so many op eds and articles coming out about the US, you know, are our, our best days done? And the fact that that question even comes up is proof to me that the signs are so incredible that not even the most optimistic mainstream columnists can ignore it now. So yes, they'll continue to deny it and say, don't worry, Mitt Romney or Barack Obama will return us to a time where we have all the prosperity that we imagined that we had back in the past. But as we know through all of the people that we've spoken to over the last few years that we've done this show, we really face a lot of barriers towards ever having something like that again, ever being able to just waste resources without being a lot smarter about how we actually run our society. But going back to what Steven Jenkinson was saying... One thing that really stood out for me was how he was saying that if we proceeded as if we were needed versus being needy. When we were talking with Donnie McLurkin a few episodes ago, he was talking about how capitalism trains us to always want something instead of looking at what we have. And I was wondering if if you, Seth, had thought about that question and if you had seen how people think about the things that they need as opposed to how they can actually be useful in the situation as if they were needed.
0: I think a lot of time. People think about what they want more than what they need. And a lot of times it's confusing to people what they want versus what they need. Do I really need to have that new pair of shoes or do I really want them? In addition, I think that this acquisition of goods, this needing of this capitalistic desire to replace something that's so fundamentally missing within ourselves comes out when you fill your fill that need with a capitalistic good when you go out and buy that new iphone when you go out and buy that new pillow for your bed or something like that anything you buy it's filling that that gap within yourself which is different than when you make something making definitely has a different connotation than when you're trading cash value for something that is not built by you or somebody that you know when you're putting value into a corporation into into a place where you don't even know where it's coming from you lose a little bit of the of the the value of that good into this place where you don't even know where it comes from. And so many of us are filling needs within ourselves with capitalistic goods. And I think this is something that's very fundamentally wrong with our society. And it I mean, I'm guilty of it myself. I'm sure that even living in the westernized society right now uh, partakes in that somewhat.
2: Like we spoke about with Paul Kingsnorth a few episodes ago about consumerism and the hope for an easy life that consumerism provides. The problem is that in our dying culture, we don't really have a substitute for what it means to actually be part of a real live thriving culture and so we fill that need with the consumer drive and we've been filling that need for decades now because our culture has really been dying for that long and just recently in mainstream Canadian magazine McLean's they ran a story called The Broken Generation and it was the cover story actually about the number of Canadian students that feel depressed and even suicidal people who are going to universities who are just absolutely filled with despair because the job market is so slow and the careers that a lot of whether It was their older sibling, you know, was hoping for it's not panning out. And this has been going on for years now because of the lack of real economic growth that things have really been slowing down and stagnating. And so people are really starting to face up against that bitterness, that sadness that Stephen Jenkinson said that he found that people are not able to face. And without that ability to be sad, there really is that bitterness of not having access to that consumer economy that we have been told we would have our whole life if we studied hard and, you know, got a job that paid well and we were told that, you know, if you work hard it's really your own ability to achieve all those things and be part of the consumer economy because that's the metric by which you're judged as a good person that contributes to society and now we really see that falling apart and that's the case in the United States as well with the American dream it it goes all around but in talking about how to act as if we're needed instead of versus needy Stephen was talking about the need to create a new culture and he was talking about the importance of having kids and using the death that is occurring to plant the seeds of, of that new culture. And I was thinking about an ecological metaphor, really soil is death. It's all of these decayed, dying things that everything else that's alive is growing out of. And one of our motivations for starting the show and keeping it going is because media is a primary way that we create culture in our society. And... I've always seen the way that media has been created in our society and have always been very critical of it. And then we were thinking, well, why not just do our own thing? Because, you know, that's a way to actually contribute in a positive way towards that culture. How do you think people can actually go about creating that culture, that new culture?
0: That's a really important point, Justin, because as we've talked with many of our guests on our show and how we just did that interview with James Howard Kunstler recently, and we put the video interview up on Facebook and our blog – fiction is an extremely important part of defining culture. And I, th- I think people forget this part, the stories that make up our daily lives, whether these are, you know, you know reruns of Full House, whether that's movies that you watch on Netflix, all these stories contribute to w- your reality, to what you think, and what you believe, and what people around you believe is a reality. When you go to football games, that is a, a narrative unfolding right there on the field. When you go to a, any kind of sporting event, it is it a live narrative happening right there? And that's why it's so attractive. That's why it becomes so engrossing is because you get to see the whole narrative played out within a couple hours, you get to see the winning team win, and the losing team lose. And that's very, very powerful. A three hour movie encapsulates the whole rise and fall of a civilization, you can see the beginnings of the character being becoming a powerful knight and then his downfall that this is a very powerful thing because you're taking lifetime experiences of other people and making them your own and i think that's why Books are so very important because you can take these lifetimes of other people, you can take these life experiences of other people and incorporate them into your own life in a very, very rapid way that you would have to live lifetimes and lifetimes to actually appreciate and to have the same sort of effect as, what, as when you read a book or consume a, a movie. And so this narrative aspect of creating media is an extremely important powerful feature. And that's right, Justin. That's why we decided to make our own show because we we wanted to contribute to this narrative a little bit in our own way and to make these important topics like the stuff that we talked about with Steven Jenkinson today part of your reality.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But I wanted to touch on uh, just a few last things. And that was with John Michael Greer, who we heard during a break in the middle of this episode. He was saying that to become accustomed to living in a dying culture means that it's not like your culture is producing original meaningful works of art as much anymore. A lot of what we're doing are reimaginings of the past and you know a lot of the music we play on our show are covers because there's a lot of great music that's been made in the past and reimagining it in new and different ways is also really fun. For some people maybe that's annoying. But I think there can be a lot of joy in reimagining as, as long as you bring your own creativity to it and realize that, that that's a lot of what our cultural production is today. But also I wanted to highlight the difference in the view from Stephen to that of our last episode when we spoke with Simon Black about getting up and leaving your culture and moving to another part of the world because maybe their economy is growing faster than in Western Europe or in North America. Stephen was talking about not abandoning your culture and not becoming an expat and being there for your culture
0: at this time when it is reaching its final last breaths. What did you think of that? So that's a really good point, Justin. Running away from culture versus embracing culture. What is the best path? We had a listener who weighed in on this as well.
6: Hey guys, this is Emil calling. Um, you know, for the most part, I've really, really enjoyed all your shows. They've been stellar. However, the last couple, i got to say, have been a little disappointing. And this and this last one here, interview with Robert Newworth, an interview with Simon Black, totally, I I enjoy Simon Black more, but I I think his arguments were all over the map. He was talking to both sides of his mouth. It made no sense. Um, He's telling people to hop on a plane and go where there's opportunity, but that's only because we've got cheap fossil fuels. I would have really liked you to come up and just say, hey, these arguments that you're or these suggestions you're giving people, how would that change if you realize that peak oil is here and done and it's a sealed deal and we're never going back to cheap energy again and every year it's going to be a little worse and worse and worse? I think a lot of these things, a lot of his statements would just disappear. Uh, He'd have to retract them or he'd have to change his view, whether he believes or not is another issue. And for the most part, I think you guys do believe in peak oil, peak energy, peak everything, peak debt, peak environment, I mean, we've all reached the peak, it's, uh, you know, the limits to growth, and a lot of what he's saying makes that irrelevant, or it it tries to dismiss it, which, I mean, part of the show, he talked about how we're living in this fantasy world, so I, I just, again, I just didn't get his point, and I think you guys should have interjected, or at least introduced um, the concept and say how does that now what you said five minutes ago how would that change in an energy diminished world and you know the fact that he his buddy can pay a cocktail wage is 100 grand a year is insanity to me that's just these countries coming to the party late you know we're all getting the hangover because we started partying at 12 noon and these guys showed up at 10 o'clock and party's over by midnight so yeah there's a bit of this going on in the world where you get some insanity where a cocktail waitress can make a hundred grand. That makes no sense at all. It never did and it never will and it can't last. But I explain it just to just come into the party a little bit late. You know, and just a little bit about me. You know, I'm uh, an engineer by background. Uh, I'm a consulting engineer at this point my in my life and I got one foot in, one foot out. Like I see what's coming and I've been busy preparing. I have done more than most, I, w- I would imagine. I have Wow. I've uh, I even built an animal barn just to have in case I ever need it. I've got extra water supplies. I've got cisterns. I've been doing the last four years, I have been converting my entire house. I refaced my house to add extra insulation. I've put a fake wall so I can have an air gap and further insulation and reclad the whole thing. I'm on geothermal. I've got 10 kilowatt solar backup. And a concept I have for your show is, Uh, What I and and my wife have been going through is um, you know burnout. Like we've been preparing for so long and have done so much. uh, Most people can't even wrap their head around it, and you know, and I'm still waiting for the hammer to fall, and it's not. And so I'm getting, you know, what I have problem with is how long can this insanity go for? Because I know it's limited, but then you know my friends think I'm insane. You know, I, uh, we go through a couple of, uh, upper end circles and they just think we're nuts. And, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing to, it's like, it's like, you know, if you're building the ark during, in the Bible and everyone thinks you're just insane for doing what you're doing. But anyway, that's a topic I'd like to, to discuss. It's just, you know, uh, the burnout that comes from trying to prepare and preparing too early, you get burned out and you don't see the end. You don't, and, and people think you're just, Insane and your friends and family start to poke fun at you and it's a it's a bit of an issue But anyway, uh, as I said, like to um, hear what your thoughts are on that.
0: So Emil Thank you so much for sharing your preparedness story with us And it's really inspiring to hear that you are actually getting out there putting boots on the ground Making the changes that need to happen to make sure that you and your family are going to be around after the collapse I know it can seem kind of uh, frustrating sometimes when you f- you're getting all ready and you're getting all prepared and then nothing happens. It seems like you're doing all this for naught, but you're not gonna feel that way come you know five or six years down the road or whenever this comes to be and you're gonna be the only one with where all your neighbors go to. And they're like, hey, can we use your cistern pump and can we take a shower in your, in your well that you dug in the ground? Can we hang out in your house with the, with the warm heat? They're-, they're gonna be coming to you. And,
2: and it might seem a little crazy to know all the problems with the system, the debt, like you mentioned, with peak oil and all the other issues. Um, and still see the system continuing on. But everyone may say that you're crazy in, in your social circle but if you look at what's happening in a lot of European countries right now where their economy is completely unraveling, having solar panels and having uh, you know, cheap electricity that you can manage yourself and having all the things that you're putting together makes a lot of sense. And I promise you that if somebody has put some preparations in in one of those countries, they're not being looked at as crazy right now because everybody's experiencing uh, this economic turmoil that we've been talking about on our show and so many other people have been talking about for so long. But in North America, it could take a lot longer to get there than we may think. You know, it could take four or five years before. Uh, we have a Greece-like scenario in the United States. Or, you know, it could happen next year as soon as the U.S. goes off the fiscal cliff and, you know, a new administration comes in that starts hacking away European austerity style. So, um, you know, it can be easy to get burned out in these sorts of things, but you also have to, you know, do whatever preparations you can and then just live your life without having to always worry about, you know, is there going to be a collapse like tomorrow when I wake up? You know, you just have to move on in some
0: ways. That's absolutely right, Justin. So, Emile's point is pretty valid here. These are two different ways of thinking about dealing with these declining societies. Do you go out and do you try to make a new life for yourself in a society that's still thriving and you believe that's going to keep on thriving post peak everything? Uh, or do you or do you try to stay with your culture and, you know, be there when it dies? These are two different opposing points of view that I think both have some merit in them. Justin, what do you think about this?
2: Yeah, I really appreciate that voicemail. That's one of my favorite kind of voicemails to get that really elucidates some of the topics that we've had on our show. Peak oil is a very big deal as we've discussed on our show, but there are tons of fossil fuel reserves around the world. And when you're talking about the developing world economies, they really don't use that much oil. Peak oil is a big deal for the United States and a really serious problem for developed nations that use a lot of oil. But when you're talking about developing nations that really just use maybe several hundred thousand to a million or two million barrels a day of oil, losing 10% of that or even 20% of that is not going to collapse their economy in the same way that we would experience that in the developed world in Canada or the United States or even France or the UK. And it's not like, as we know from studying peak oil, it's not like all the oil is going away. We just can't grow conventional oil production like we used to. So we're growing things like the tar sands and we're growing the dirtier and more polluting aspects of our fossil fuel base in the world. And so if five years from now or 10 years from now, conventional oil production declines to 60 million barrels a day, which would be disastrous from the US standpoint. For a lot of countries in the world, it's not really that big of a problem. However, there are the economic impacts of slower growth or no growth or economic contraction, and that's obviously going to impact developing world economies. But what's stopping a South American country in five or 10 years from seeing the horrific economic conditions of the global north and saying, you know, forget this whole neoliberalism thing, we're going to overthrow that. And we're going to start having a revolution based on some of the ideas of the economists that we've talked to on our show, or some of the people that they cite, or, you know, building a society based on those principles. I fully expect something like that to happen. I don't think it will happen in the United States anytime soon, but definitely in other countries around the world. So. Even if the economic growth that Simon Black was talking about, I think, really has to do more with the kinds of growth that we've seen in the past. Maybe it's a way to make a quick buck now without a greater revolution, a shift in the way that humans interact on the planet. But I think that there are going to be cultures and there are going to be other countries that actually do make that shift and start building an economy that's actually based on ecological principles. Though maybe I'm a little bit too op- optimistic for
0: our episode on death. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, Justin. We need optimism all the uh, everywhere we go. So that's right, Justin. Positive attitudes and optimistic minds are extremely important right now, especially right now, in, in this time of upheaval and you know the, the twilight of civilization. And that's why we have such amazing listeners. We have so many people out there who have been listening to the show, have been retweeting tweets and posting Facebook stuff, and we even got some great voicemails in addition to the one we've heard already from Emil.
7: Hey guys, my name is Dan. Really been enjoying the show. Just wanted to just tell you guys about what I've been up to. i am just finished up my grad studies at UBC studying medical genetics, and I'm having a pretty tough time getting out there and finding a job. So today I went on Craigslist and, and found a day of work uh, picking blueberries out in, in Delta. It was really a bit of an experience to get out there and just work in a field for the day. And just to realize how much work it takes to pick that amount of food. I spent five hours, picked 21 pounds of blueberries, got paid $15 for my time. So it worked out to about, what, $3 an hour. So there's 30 other people out there also picking berries at the same time. Uh, It looked like they had a lot more experience doing that sort of thing than I did. I don't know if I'll be doing it more in the future. I'm definitely looking to pick up more casual labor here and there, at least until I can find something that actually uses my training. So wish me luck, and I'm enjoying the show, so uh, keep it up. Thanks. Bye.
2: Thanks to Dan for calling in to talk about what it's been like to finish graduate school at UBC studying medical genetics and how he went out there and was harvesting blueberries in the field. And that can be a huge transition because when you're in the lab studying advanced science, it's Quite often, completely disconnected from that life and death cycle of actually working out as a part of agriculture and realizing, you know, all the food in the grocery store is connected to that deeper cycle. And just like he was saying, like Dan was pointing out, how much work it takes just to get one pint of blueberries. I mean, it's really stunningly incredible to think about that. And so, yeah, I mean, this is a transition that people are facing all over the world. They're finding a stagnating economy. And I was just reading in the New York Times about the United States how students who were going to their undergrad or grad school and are now out farming in Portugal, people are returning to farming who are in their mid 20s or early 30s because they've been trying to get jobs for years and years and they're just fed up with it and they're giving up. And, uh, you know, it's, It's happening in every economy in the developed world where job growth has stagnated and unemployment's high in Spain and Greece. You can look at Greek newspapers and once a month they run a story about some person who moved from a rural Greek village to the cities like Athens and then haven't been able to find a job for years and then just gave up on it and moved back home to live with their parents or grandparents and live on the farm, the kind of life that they thought they'd wanted to escape so bad. And some of them say, you know, "Uh, this is so disappointing, but they move on and they make the best of it. So it's really interesting to see that process moving forward.
0: Humans adapt and evolve better than pretty much any species out there, aside from maybe like bacteria. I think humans will survive this upcoming crisis no matter what. It's just going to be what form does society take on the other side. And Dan, we wish you luck for finding a job that uses your skills that you learned in grad school.
2: And so best of luck in looking for something more than just picking blueberries.
7: I love your podcast. I think you guys are great. I listen every time you make one. You're extraordinary thinkers. You ask great questions of your guests. And you're funny, too. I listen when I'm at work inside a huge cement cooler with fans blowing on my head in a grocery store. Thanks for the perspectives you bring me there. And by the way, I'm a granny, and I get it. Maybe because my name is not Muriel. Thanks, guys
2: and thanks so much for listening to us there at work where we can keep your mind going as you're working along and hey it's great to reach out to an older generation to hear that you're a granny and you enjoy the show
0: heck yeah it is i'm yeah. glad that we have we've been we've been appealing to grannies all over the world <laughs> it's so wonderful to actually hear one calling in thank you so much to all those grandmothers all over the world Who are listening to the shows. And thank you so much for this specific grandmother for calling in.
2: And what we need you to do is to force your grandchildren to listen to our podcast. That's really the requirement that we have of all of
0: our grandmothers. Bath time is a perfect time to put on the extra environmentalist. You know, kids love listening to things while they take baths.
8: Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Maybe maybe put them to sleep with a little extra environmentalist in the background. The soothing dulcet tones of Justin Ritchie putting you to sleep every night. (laughs)
2: Yeah nothing nothing like listening to to more than an hour of an interview about dying a cultural death so nothing like that to put you to sleep Yeah. So thanks to everybody who left us a voicemail since our previous episode. You can give us a call at plus one nine one nine seven oh one nine eight seven two. That's nine one nine seven oh one XTRA or you can reach out to us by Skype on our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Just click the green phone button on the right hand column and let us know your thoughts on a recent episode. Should we be asking more people about what they think? Uh, regarding any particular topic, whether that's peak oil or anything else. We really appreciate hearing from
0: you. That's right, Justin. Also, find us on Stitcher Radio app find us on our SoundCloud page where we break down all these episodes into manageable or you know semi-manageable chunks that you can definitely post on your friend's Facebook page. And You can also su- subscribe to all of our episodes which are freely available using the iTunes store. Uh, we've had a lot of great emails recently and I wanted to highlight one
2: by Charles in Chile. He heard our interview with Simon Black and he wanted to comment and say that he thought the opportunities that Simon was talking about can be framed in many ways and he said that certainly Simon Black's right that there are opportunities to profit in the present moment um, and opportunities to invest oneself differently to insulate oneself from the coming changes in the global order but that's really obvious and Simon's not talking about anything that's reflective about the human condition and that he's addressing a specific audience and one that maybe he thinks he can profit from or with and so it's pretty clear about the moral side and he, speaking from the Chilean perspective he was saying that he moved from the United States to Chile and he was saying that Chile is full of opportunities for those familiar with how our dominant culture works to make it more like the US and he's seen an amazing change just in three years in terms of the available products which makes Makes life a lot more convenient and gives the illusion that this can go on at a mass scale uh, for a long time. So I thought that was a really interesting perspective on that on that interview because I think uh, Charles is right. You know, there are a lot of opportunities to keep the system going in other countries that really want to be a part of the system that want all the things that we've had in the in the west and have totally screwed up and you know in a lot of ways they're justified in wanting that and seeing those media images and saying hey we want some of that because those media images are so compelling you know we produce those commercials and it makes people want to be a part of the things that we're selling and the things that we're pushing but hopefully i think these countries can look at our example of the the horrible outcome of that and push for something new and actually uh, create something that's better. Thanks to everybody who left a voicemail for us. We really appreciate it. And we are also very fortunate to not just have people who leave us voicemails, but they've also sent
0: us money. That's right, Justin. They're hard-earned cash all the way from their bank account to ours. And that just really keeps the show going. And it really comes down to putting your money where you find enjoyment. You pay money for a cable subscription, you might as well throw us a few bucks if you enjoy our show. And that might sound shameless, and it might go against all that capitalistic stuff that we talked about, but it's the reality. And we really, really appreciate you guys throwing us some dollars. So big thanks to Jeff in Montana for sending us some dollars. That was really appreciative. Also, thanks to Carl in New York.
2: This isn't money that Seth and I use to go out and drink beer. This is money that we put back into the show to buy equipment. We have amazing coverage of a permaculture conference coming up, as well as some other conferences we can enable thanks to these donations and thanks to the equipment we can purchase because of these donations. And plus, every donation of $15 or more gets stickers and of $30 or more gets a t-shirt. And we'll talk a little bit more about t-shirts after we thank Jose from Brazil for donating as well. That's right. Brasilia style. Yeah, and Keel in Sacramento, in California.
0: Also, a big thank you to Paul in the Netherlands. Really appreciate you sending out some of your hard-earned dollars, and as well as Josh out in Rhode Island. Thank you so much, guys. We could not do this show without your loving support, and it makes a huge difference. Uh, Josh actually said that he's moved out onto a sailboat now, uh, gotten rid of all of his debt, and he's... He's living out there a little bit closer to nature and uh, he's he's living it up, Dmitry Orlov style, I'd say.
2: Yeah, congrats on uh, paying off uh, all your debt and enjoying life on the sailboat. And he recommends uh, reading through Voluntary Simplicity, which is definitely a really great book. So, hopefully, we'll be able to cover it a bit on the show in the near future. Um, So thanks again to everybody who's donated. They're helping us improve the quality and content of our show. And, you know, Seth and I do this with our spare time and we would not be as dedicated to putting out shows as frequently without all of our listener support and all the amazing people who... Uh, give us feedback and shoot us emails. And our Facebook page has been insanely active. And we got so many posts on our Facebook page and some of them we're able to get to uh, pretty quickly, some of them it takes us a little while to get to. Uh, Marina recently posted about uh, Nikola Tesla and free unlimited energy that Nikola Tesla put together. And, you know, this is something I'm an electrical engineer in my background and Nikola Tesla is absolutely fascinating to me. And I've listened and, and read a bit about Nikola Tesla and I'd love to do a show on him in the near future. We haven't had a chance to, but there's all kinds of fringe energy technologies that are absolutely fascinating and may or may not work, but uh, they're certainly interesting
0: to talk about. We also want to do a quick shout out to our Google Plus page, which we don't usually get to, but big thanks to Bradley, Reza, David, Black Hill Eagle Farms, Miles Higston, Dana, Nels, and Eric. Big time thanks. Yeah, and thanks for everybody who's showing, who's sharing the
2: show on Google Plus and on Reddit, but I wanted to go back to Facebook. Matthew posted a video of Matt Ridley, the author of The Rational Optimist. We've used some clips from Matt Ridley before on the show in our TechnoFix episode. You know, if Matt Ridley would come on our show, I would be absolutely happy to talk to him. I haven't sent him an interview request, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Ian posted on our Facebook wall a transcript of our interview with him that we posted on our SoundCloud page about the film Occupy Love, about... The new film from Velko Ripper that he was the producer on, Occupy Love. So definitely check that out. And that brings to mind Dmitry Orlov's blog, who posted a transcript of our recent interview with Dmitry, which was really awesome. So that's just some of the recent traffic on our Facebook page. We really appreciate everybody sharing links. Also, make sure to check out uh, the post from Marina talking about Croatian railways. Definitely help sign and make sure that more rail isn't taken off the books because as you all know, we're gonna need it in the future.
0: I really like those transcripts, Justin. Those are pretty cool. It's some people put some hard work into transcribing our words and the words of our guests and that's really impressive to see. Another exciting development that we have just recently put together on the show is our Zazzle store where we will be putting out all sorts of t-shirts of printed material that bears the extra environmentalist logo so that you can have those items to wear or to share or to gift.
2: Yeah and it was a hard debate for me to open a shop because a lot of the message of our show is not about consuming mindlessly and the popularity of our t-shirts made us think you know people have donated and want medium and large t-shirts and we ran out so how should we move forward in doing this so at least for now we're thinking Zazzle's the best way to uh, send out t-shirts to people who donate or instead of donating you can just go straight to the Zazzle store and buy a t-shirt there. We made sure that the products offered are not sweatshop labor, that they're the best uh, t-shirts we could find. And every t-shirt you buy, we get a few bucks to help support the show.
0: It's a little bit ironic that we talked about capitalism and buying stuff and how it's filling that gap inside of you. And then we turn around and say that we're opening a Zazzle store. But... It's part of this ironic world that we live in. We've got to live in both worlds sometimes. And that means that you got to support yourself. And right now, that means putting out a t shirt once in a while. So thanks for bearing with us during this incredible time of ups and downs and being a part of the show with your dollar support and your t shirt support. And
2: thanks to our web genie, Chris, for helping to set up the Zazzle store and for so many other things that he's been doing under the hood for the show. So thanks for that, Chris. And also thanks to Kevin, who has been editing up a storm for us and helps to make all of these episodes and helps us release all these episodes on a more regular basis.
0: Big thanks to Chris and Kevin. You guys are amazing. We couldn't do the show without you. Your teamwork is essential. So once again, folks, thanks for joining us. So get out there and get your Ph.D. in life.
5: Death is swept under the carpet in our culture. In the hospital. They try to keep you alive as long as possible in utter desperation. They won't tell you that you're going to die. They uh when their relatives have to be informed that it's a hopeless case they say don't tell this to the patient. And all the relatives come around with hollow grins and say well you'll be all right in about a month and then we'll go. and have a holiday somewhere, and sit by the sea, and uh, listen to the birds, and whatnot. And the dying person knows that this is mockery. It's not going to be like being buried alive. It's not going to be like being in the darkness forever. I tell you what, it's going to be like, as if you never had existed at all. Not only you, but everything else as well. That just there was never anything, and there's no one to regret it. Now, there's no problem. Well, think about that for a while. It's kind of a weird feeling you get when you really think about that. You really imagine just to stop altogether. And you can't even call it stop because you can't have stop without start. And there wasn't any start, there's just no thing. Well, then when you come to think of it, that's the way it was before you were born. I mean, if you go back in memory, as far as you can go, you get to the same place. As you go forward in your anticipation of the future as to what it's going to be like to be dead. Then you get these your funny ideas. That this blankness is the necessary counterpart of what we call being. Now, we all think we're alive, don't we? I mean, we're really here, that there is something called existence? You know, the existentialists, assigned throneless. Ah! You know, here we <laughs> are. But how could you be experiencing that as a reality, unless you had once been dead? How, what gives us any ghost of a notion that we are here? Except by contrast with the fact that we once weren't. And later on, won't we? But this thing is a cycle, like positive and negative poles in electricity.
2: On the Halloween episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we speak with David McNally about monsters of the market.
9: And I think that's what a lot of monster metaphors are about. And the vampire, of course, is the one who lives off the life energies of others. Zombies are primarily, it's particularly in the classic formulation, it's changed in popular culture somewhat in recent decades, but in their classic formulation, going back to Haiti, where our original zombie image comes from. It's the mindless laborer. It's the person who's been stripped of all identity and just made a laboring beast. And so I think those are really resonant with the alienating experiences that most of us have under capitalism. But most of the time, we're just put through the motions and we accept that that's the way it is. But I think there's a part of us, sometimes unconscious, sometimes conscious, that rebels against that and resists that and depicting it as, as monstrous is one way of at some level saying there's something wrong about this there's something really deeply unsettling about the idea that somebody could own me for eight hours a day and control me for eight hours a day and i think monster metaphors and monster images capture that
4: We'll oh, come and play, everything's
8: A-OK Friendly neighbors there, that's where we meet
1: Can you tell me how to get, how to get to Austerity Street since I've been back on Sesame Street. I've been busy out in the Northern California forest working on many plans to profit from the downfall of industrial civilization. But now that I'm back, I wanna see how everybody's doing. Oh, hey, it's Elmo. How are you, Elmo?
8: Hi, Bohemian Grover. Oh, hi, Elmo.
1: How are you today?
8: Oh, things are kind of rough here. We got so hungry because of the food riots that we had to eat Snuffleupagus. Ah! Snuffleupagus! You're eating him! Yes, he's very tasty. There's a lot of him, so he kept us fed for a whole month. Ah! Would you like a bite, Bohemian Grover?
1: You're willing to share with Grover?
8: We are all about sharing here on Sesame Street. Sharing is caring. Thanks
1: for now, Elmo. But I'm going to walk down the street to see how everybody else is doing.
8: O- OK. Well, if you want a piece of stuff of love, I guess you should come back soon.
1: It looks like Oscar's still out on the street. He's been prepared for austerity for a long time. How are
0: you, Oscar? Well, things here haven't really changed. I'm still living in this trash can, but, you know, there's just a lot more trash cans these days they are starting to call me Oscar the Growth. Oscar the Growth? What is that? Well, there's been so much trash and so many other people living in trash cans that I've just had to teach so many people how to live in a trash can. From what I hear, you're now the optimist. That's right. Everyone looks to me when they want to see happiness. I'm the picture of happiness.
1: Well, nice seeing you, Oscar. I'm gonna head down the street and see how our friend the Count is doing. Talk to you later. Oh, this building used to be where Bert and Ernie lived. Now it's a bank. I wonder what happened. Welcome to Cookie Monster Bank, where you deposit cookies. I trade cookies money? Oh, cookies for money? Where'd you get the cookies from? It's better not to ask that question. I had to trade long and hard, and part of it might be snuffleupagus. It looks like I can invest in cookie-back securities. What are those? cookie securities?
0: They're very tasty. Nom-nom-nom-nom-nom.
1: What happens if everybody wants to get their cookies out of the bank at the same time? Are there enough cookie-back securities to support it?
0: There's a reason why they call me a monster. Nom-nom-nom-nom-nom-nom.
1: Nice seeing you, Cookie Monster. I'm gonna head down the street. Bye Bohemian Grover. Tell all your friends about the
8: Cookie Monster Bank.
3: Sixteen trillion. <laughs> Sixteen
2: trillion two hundred million.
1: <laughs> hey there, Count. What are you counting? The national
2: debt. Every time the debt clock goes up, I have to count it out. <laughs> That's a really high number.
1: How long have you been counting for? I've been counting non-stop since the Federal Reserve launched the first round of quantitative easing. And now that quantitative easing is going on for infinity, I'll be counting forever. Wow, Count, you have a really difficult job. I'll let you keep going at it. Okay, great to see you, Bohemian Grover. Sixteen trillion, two hundred million, fifty thousand. Hey, Big Bird, how are
8: you? Oh, hey, Grover. It's been so long. Wow,
1: Big Bird. What happened to your feathers?
8: Well, when all the gold ran out, everybody thought that my feathers were gold. They came here and took them all because they thought my feathers were a store of value. I think they're trading for high amounts on Wall Street.
1: Oh, that's too bad, Big Bird. I think I have some friends who could help out with that. Or maybe already have helped out with that.
8: (laughs) Grover, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your friends. I don't think they're very nice.
1: What do you mean?
8: Well... The Bohemian Grove and the super elite that you hang out with aren't really nice to people like us. People that live on the street and people that don't have too much money or feathers. Well, uh,
1: I don't know how I feel about that, Big Bird. It's been too long. I think that we just hang out with different crowds now.
8: It's true, Grover. But you know, you'll always be a part of Sesame Street down deep. Well,
1: uh, well, uh... Uh, Well, it's been nice seeing you, Big Bird, but I have several investors that I need to meet with right now, so I'll I'll see you
8: later. Don't forget about us here on Austerity Street. We've been so good to you. Don't forget about us. Today's show was brought to you by the letters Q and E and the number Infinity.